2 Corinthians 8, 1-5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. All right. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to be with you. And I've got your attention with that little bit of feedback there as well. Um, but um, a great morning to be diving into God's Word. And if this is your first week in a church or with us here at City Light, just to be clear, this isn't the topic of every single week. We just do this once a year during our vision series. Uh, and also, when we often talk about giving, it's very rare that we talk about it really primarily in terms of giving towards the church. We say always at City Light that God calls us to be generous and that we're to steward our finances to live as simply as possible that we might use what we have to alleviate poverty and injustice in the world and to advance the gospel. And so we are going to be focusing on that particularly this week. Um, but also, if you're here and visiting, as Jacob said before, this is in many ways, uh, we see the members of this church as supporting this ministry. So if you're visiting, we are not after your money. We just want you to hear the gospel and the word of God here this week. And I think it really should be a helpful week to dive in no matter where you're at. Whether you are someone who's investigating Christianity and would even describe yourself as kind of skeptical or whether you're kind of finding out about Jesus for the first time or you've been a follower of him for a long time, it matters what the scriptures teach about something like money because it gets right to the heart, doesn't it? I was reminded of this in looking over a short story recently that was written by Leo Tolstoy. If you're not familiar with Tolstoy, he's considered one of the literary giants of basically all time, but obviously Russian literature in particular. You may be familiar with his book, War and Peace, which is a giant book that inhabits bookshelves all over the world and remains entirely unread, but it's a great thing to put on your bookshelf to make you look like someone who's well-read. So if you've got one of those and you've read it, well done. But he wrote something a little bit shorter, and it was a story called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And that's the driving question of the whole story. It starts with the central character, and his name is Pahom. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but... P-A-H-O-M, Pahom. And he's a poor man, and he says to himself in his heart, We peasants always die as we are living, with nothing of our own. If only we had our own land, it would be different. And so he scrounges everything he has, he borrows, he actually you know, hires out one of his sons to make a bit of extra money, and he scrapes together all he has, and he manages to buy a little plot of land, and he works that land, and it grows. He actually makes some money out of it. But not satisfied with that, he sells that land in order to buy some more fields and kind of expands his industry and takes in more money. And not being satisfied with that, he hears of this foreign land owned by a tribe called the Bashkirs, where land can be bought for cheap. And he thinks to himself, man, if I could just get there, I could get 10 times as much as what I have here. And so he goes and he realizes that he has to go and meet the chief to ask for land. And so he meets the chief and he says to him, how much for land? And the chief says to him, 1,000 rubles for one day. And he says, I'm sorry, I, th I think you've misunderstood me. I said, how much does the land cost? 
And the chief says again, 1,000 rubles for one day. Here's how it works. You put 1,000 rubles in this hat, then you go out from sunup to sundown and mark out as much land as you possibly can. And if you can get back here before sundown to the hat, then you get all the land that you have marked out. But if you don't make it back here by sundown, you lose the 1,000 rubles. That's how it works. And in his mind, it just begins racing. He thinks, what, an, what a massive tract of land I could do if I set out for a whole day. And so the next day he does it. He pays his 1,000 rubles and he begins to mark out his territory. And as he goes, he goes further and further and further and further and he realizes that now time is starting to run out. And so he realizes if he doesn't get back, he's going to lose everything. So he starts moving quicker. He's faint, but he presses on harder and harder. He throws off his equipment and begins to run desperately. He's covered with sweat and panic, and his clothes are clinging to him. He feels like he's breathing. He feels like his lungs are like a blacksmith's bellows, it says. And as he gets closer and closer to the finish line, the sun is kind of setting, and he's almost there, and his legs at this point have almost completely given way. And he feels like towards the end that he's almost going to die. And almost with deathly exhaustion, he says, There is plenty of land, but will God allow me to actually live on it? I have lost my life. I have lost my life. I will never reach the spot. And he finally gets just before sundown to the hat, holds on to it, and collapses there. And the chief says, That's a fine fellow. He's marked out for himself much land. But his servant realizes that he's not breathing. And the final words of the story are this. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Pahom to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. And that was the answer to the question, how much land does a man need? It's a dark story from Tolstoy, but it was Russian, you know, they, they love that biz. But it is a story about the heart. And it is a story about the madness of greed and how self-destructive it can even be. That a man in trying to gain so much land would actually lose his life. And no doubt, Tolstoy loved Jesus' words, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. And no doubt he had in his mind when Jesus said, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? See, the modern heart for love and for, uh, for money and for more stuff can in the end be self-destructive, can't it? In fact, if there was a story that, that summed up the modern attitude that we are impelled towards, it's this, isn't it? The desire for more and more and more, even if the desire for more and the getting of more is increasing our misery or even bringing us closer to death where none of it will count. So what we'll see in, in the words of Jesus in, in, the, in the, uh, the message of 1 Corinthians today is that the gospel transforms our view of our stuff. That if you understand that Christ came as a man, God and man, to die in your place, to pour out his life generously for you, it will transform how you see everything, all of life, but particularly the finances that we have to steward, that it might move us to the same kind of grace that we've experienced in Christ. And so I'm going to pray that as we open his word, he would be showing us this in his word this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a generous God. You poured out the life of your Son for us that we might find life. And so, Father, we pray that we'd be so marked by your goodness and your love for us in Jesus 
that it would move us to a radical generosity. Not that we might earn your favor, but knowing that you have loved us eternally, that we might want to find joy in what you find joy in, that is, in being generous. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. We're going to read a section from a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. And the reason it's called 1 Corinthians is it's the first letter that a guy called Paul writes to a church in a place in Greece called Corinth. And the reason he's writing this is that Paul was someone who hated Christians, persecuted and murdered Christians, and then himself got saved, which of course would be an awkward turnaround when he starts showing up to the gatherings. But once he is sent out as a gospel missionary, he begins planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. And one of them that he plants is in Corinth, in the southern part of Greece. And he writes them this letter. And he writes them concerning uh, a gift that they're going to give to the church that's back in Jerusalem, people they've never met. And in 1 Corinthians 16, wonderful, we read this. It says, Now concerning the, the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by my letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. He starts by saying no concern, now concerning because he's writing this letter to them because they've written a letter to him with a bunch of questions. And he's kind of just ticking them off as he goes. And they've written him a question about this collection, a collection of money that's going to go to Jerusalem. And so he says to them, now concerning this, I'm going to, I'm going to explain the answer. And the collection that's here is mentioned in other letters, but it's particularly mentioned in the letter of Romans in chapter 15, 26. We're told that the churches in the area gathered up some money to send to Jerusalem. Now, why were they doing this? There were a couple of thoughts around it. One was the idea that the church in Jerusalem had grown so large that there were so many poor people now part of the church that the church there was not able to meet those needs. Another thought is that many Jewish people would migrate towards Jerusalem because they believed that that's where the resurrection from the dead would happen. So they tried to spend the, end, the last years of their life close to Jerusalem. It was almost a kind of superstition. But some of them, as they've migrated there, maybe have come to know Jesus and become Christians, and now they're in actual deep financial need. But probably the main one was that there was a famine in the 40s, the, actual, the first ever 40s, when they, when they didn't call it the 40s, not the 1940s. But in the first century, in the, 40, in the, uh, in the 40s, there was a famine, or there was a drought in particular that led to a widespread famine. And this is probably the most likely cause for why they're collecting up this offering to send to Jerusalem. And so basically Paul is saying, hey, the church in Jerusalem sent us missionaries out with the gospel and you guys came to find life. Now it's your turn to repay the favor. They're in need and so we want you to help them. And so Paul is going around to all these churches kind of throughout Turkey and down to Greece collecting up this offering that's now going to go back to Jerusalem. And so to do this, he gives them some principles. He kind of sends the message ahead of time to give them some principles. And the first one he says is, you're to give regularly and to do it on the first day of the week. He says, set something aside on the first day of the week and do this so that when I arrive, you're not scrambling there to pull something together. So on the first day of the week, which was Sunday for them, they're to set something aside for this collection. And this principle is a, is a principle around being wise with finances that's carried through from the Old Testament to the New. That God's people always set aside what they're to give generously away from their first fruits and not from their last fruits. 
Because the truth is that leftovers never honor the person you're giving to, do they? Imagine you were invited over to someone's house for dinner. And imagine you got there, and when, once you got there, you realized there wasn't really a dinner prepared, and they kind of open up the fridge, and they start pulling out sort of like the last week's bits and pieces from dinner. It's kind of a bit of a hodgepodge meal, and they kind of put it on the table for you. Now, if, if those, per, those people were in particular financial need, you might be like, that's fine. Like, that is, that is them just being generous to you. But let's change the context a little. Imagine you went over to someone's house, and it was absolutely minted. So they're in no way, it just seems by all appearances that they're not struggling for money. But then you might think, well, maybe, maybe they've been unwise, maybe they spent everything on flashy things, and so now they can't afford to provide you know, a dinner for guests. But let's imagine that you also know that someone went over to their house the night before and had an absolute feast. And now you're there, and you're getting leftovers. What would that indicate about the kind of relationship they had with you? It would be hard at that point not to feel like, we're leftover friends, right? We're kind of a, we, we realize now where we sit in terms of their groups of friends. And in the same way, God causes people from the Old Testament to New to give from the first fruits. That is not to say, gosh, what do I have left over and let's see if there's something around, but to set aside initially what is considered and prayed through as a generous gift and to set it aside first. To show that God is the thing that comes first. Our priorities are ordered around Him and around the gospel. And so Paul says, set it aside on the first day of the week. Do this regularly and do it out of your first fruits. And he says this, as he may prosper, meaning that some will have more financial means than others. In the Old Testament, there were stipulations around sort of 10%. They ended up sort of more around 25%. But in the New Testament, there's no number given. Paul just says to consider what's a generous amount as you prosper. That as God has given you means... For some, in the Old Testament, 10% would have been way too little. For others, that's a real stretch. But he says, consider these things and then consider the gift. But if that was all that Paul had to say about being generous, that would be it. We'd be done for today and we could all go. And, and look, maybe that's what you were kind of hoping, but there is actually a little bit more to dive into here from, from Corinthians. And so for this, we dive into the second letter of Corinthians. The second letter that Paul writes he writes as he's kind of on the way to visit these churches and he sends the letter ahead to say, hey, I'm coming and here's what's happening. And we pick up the letter here in 2 Corinthians 8 as he writes about this gift that he's going to collect. Look at what it says at 2 Corinthians 8, 1-5. It says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So there's this famine going on in Jerusalem. All of the churches in the area are like, we want to give, we want to help out our brothers and sisters who we've never met face to face but we know that they know Jesus like we know Jesus and we want to help them out in their struggle. And so Paul is going around to these churches, taking these collections, and he's telling the Corinthians ahead of time, hey, I visited the church in Macedonia and they laid out a massively generous giving. And not only that, but it's inexplicably generous. Because he says they weren't rich. It says here in the text that they gave out of their affliction and their poverty. And we don't know why it was that they were poor, 
Perhaps it was because we know they'd been persecuted in Macedonia for following Jesus. They may have had their properties seized or things taken from them. They may have been imprisoned. There's no, there's no description as to why it is that they're poor, just that they were, and yet they gave. And not only that, but it says they gave generously. It says here that they gave not only according to their means, but beyond their means. Paul almost describes saying to them, telling them to calm down. He's like, guys, just like it's great to be generous, but just maybe wind it back a bit. There was such an eagerness to give. And it's not only that, because you might think, well, look, yeah, people can be coerced to give. You can sort of religiously guilt people into giving. You can kind of make them feel bad about others until they give. But here he says they gave with joy. It was their joy to be generous. Despite their affliction, despite their poverty, despite what they were going through, it was their joy to be generous. And why? What would explain this kind of generosity? Well, Paul says it's the gospel. It's the gospel that can transform our hearts like this. Come, come with me to 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians sorry, 8, 7 to 8, when he says this, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as only, only as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul says, look, when I went to Macedonia, I didn't have to twist their arm to be generous. But all it was was them understanding the love with which they had been loved by God, understanding the gospel of grace, and it overflowed in this generosity. That as they experienced the grace of God, the God who owed them nothing, would lay down the life of his son to save them, it just moved them to want to do the same. To emulate God's heart, that as it's God's heart to be generously joyful, that they would too. And so here Paul is saying, once you grasp this, it transforms everything. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he simplifies the gospel to this sentence. In 5.21 he says, He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was spiritually rich. That is, he had no debt of sin. He is the only human to have walked in perfect love, that he oppressed, abused no one, and more than that, that he was willing to even lay down his life for his enemies. Jesus was spiritually rich and we were spiritually poor. We had the debt of sin that could only be paid off by death. We had rejected God. We had loved and delighted in what was not right and good and honored ourselves instead of God. And yet God in his mercy and generosity sent Christ as an atoning sacrifice. And Paul is saying, once you get this, it flips everything on its head. Life goes from being about how much can I get while I give as little to how much can I give away knowing that that's where real joy is found. So the cross transforms everything. Grace transforms giving. And the way that the Bible sees giving for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, is that we give away because God has given away. That we give not of our own, but as God has given us, we give that we might experience his joy. You can think of it in this way. When I was in, when I was in primary school, 
and they still have these at schools. They used to have a Mother's Day stall. And so the way it would work is, as a year one student or whatever, I had no dollars. But on Mother's Day, mum would give me like $10, and you would have to go to school and buy her a present. Now, if mum was being entirely pragmatic, and my mum is here today, so you can actually ask her about this, but if mum was being entirely pragmatic, if she really wanted to spend that $10 in a way that would have brought her a lot of joy, she would have gone out and bought something for herself. But instead, she would delegate it to me and say, go and buy me something rubbish from school and bring it home and we'll leave it out for a week and then we'll put it in the bin. That's not what happened, obviously, but you know, that's what it is. But the reason it was significant, and I imagine this is why they do it, because this is why we do it as parents, is because you wanted to give your kids the chance to experience the joy of giving, away, of giving a gift to someone else. It's not even their money, but you just want them to experience that. It's a relational thing. And in the same way, God has everything he needs. We don't give to him because he's broke and he needs us to help out, or like he kind of spent everything at the cross and now it's our turn to sort of chip in some, some coins in the till. Now he has everything. And the reason he gives us things to steward is so that we might experience the kind of joy that he experiences in being generous and in meeting the needs of others. This is the joy of giving. This is what moved the Macedonian church to incredible generosity. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians, hey, if you get the gospel, that he who knew no sin has become sin on your behalf, then this is how it will funnel into how you use what you have. And to go on with this, he says it really should be a joy. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11. He says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having, the, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food and will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Not a guilt-ridden, reluctant, grit the teeth, I guess I should or I have to giver, but one who has experienced the joy of the gospel. And it's like, now it's my joy to find joy in what God finds joy in. And so this cuts out some false motivations to give. See, one particularly false motivation to give that you may have heard, and even sadly in churches, is that we give in order to get. This is the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you give away, God will bless you, either financially or he will cure your sicknesses or he will make sure all your kids are great at sports or I don't know, I don't know what goes around in those circles. But it's a false teaching. The reward here of giving is not that you get something else. That's just capitalism turned into religion. It's like God is a great investment sort of program and he'll give you dividends if you invest now. But no, it's not true. Here, says, here Paul says the joy is the giving. That as you meet the needs of others, that is the joy. Because that's what God finds joy in. Prosperity is a false motivation. But also here guilt is a false motivation. In the gospel, you are saved not because you do good things. 
or not because you were bad and now you've cleaned up your act and so God's ready to accept you. The gospel is we were stuck in sin, contributed nothing, and God was willing to forgive and to save. We don't give out of guilt or the sense that if I do this, it's kind of like paying God back. Now that's religion. That's not the gospel. And that's not the motivation here. So it's not prosperity, it's not guilt, and it's also not consumerism. Sometimes people can slip into this kind of mindset, that even when it comes particularly to churches, that they're like, well, give because you sort of benefit from the service, so sort of, it's like a subscription service. You're like, that is nowhere in Scripture. It is not a pay-per-view kind of system. That actually, the motivation here is that as you understand and as your heart is transformed by the gospel, it leads you to this kind of crazy generosity that you see here, motivated by a deep joy. And see, those are false motivations to give. This passage also cuts out the false motivations not to give. One of them might be, well, look, I don't feel very happy about giving, so that's why I don't give. That's why I'm not generous. But you can probably compare that one a little bit more to, like, say, parenting. This, this may shock you, and I can say it because the kids are out at City Kids, but parenting is not always fun. But it's not like you could ever as a parent be like, yeah, parenting just isn't my vibe this year. And so uh, we're just going to let the kids sort of work it out for themselves for a year until our hearts get back on track and I really feel like parenting again. <laughs> no, I mean, one, I wouldn't be here anymore. I'd be in jail. So there'd be one thing. But the other thing is, of course, as a parent, you're like, no, I know sometimes my heart lags behind my actions. And sometimes I need to be faithful to what God has called me to and my heart actually catches up. And it's the same sometimes with being generous. We're like, no, I know in the gospel that this is where real joy is. And I know it requires me to trust God. And so there will be times when my heart goes before my actions and other times where it lags after. But at the same time, we don't give up on it being a joy. We don't go to just duty or just doing it because we're called to or because oh, it's probably something I should do. But to pray, God... Grant me this joy as I step out in faithfulness and be generous. The second false motivation to give is to be like, look, I'll do it once I have the means. And we kind of addressed this last week in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. There's, like, there's these goalposts that keep moving that were like, look, one day I will be in such a state of financial abundance that then I will be generous. The problem is whatever heart you have now is the heart you take with you into the next situation. It's kind of like, you know when people are like, look, all of my relationships and everything's a mess, so I'm just going to hit reset on everything and move to a new city and then hope that everything will be different there. But the problem is you take yourself with you to the new city, the thing that caused all the problems in the first city, and so it just carries on again and again as you move around the world. Well, in the same way, giving ultimately is about the heart. If our hearts haven't been transformed or gripped by the gospel, they won't be in the next season either. See, here, Paul says the motivation is not to think, look, how much am I going to have to sacrifice that I might meet the needs of the poor or that I might advance the gospel or that I might so on and so forth. Now, Paul says the real question is, how much do I want to reap? How much joy do I want to experience in using this abundance to see other people flourish and to see the gospel go out and to see lives transformed? Where do I want to see needs met where God has given me the ability to meet needs on the other side of the world. 
Where do I want to see the church grow and reach more people and see their lives transformed and turned around? Where do I want to see vulnerable people have their needs met generously by people who have no obligation to them? Where do I want to further the kingdom of God? William Wilberforce was a deeply Christian man who was instrumental in the, in the ending of slavery in England in particular, but then it, it snowballed out across the world. And he wrote this. He said, By careful management, I should be able to give at least one quarter of my income away to the poor. And he wrote that riches were in themselves acceptable, but from the infirmity of our nature, highly dangerous possessions. And we had to value them chiefly not as instruments of luxury or splendor, but as affording the means of honoring our Heavenly Father and lessening the miseries of mankind. That our aim should be to do maximum good, to steward what we have faithfully, and to live and make sure the needs of our responsibilities are met as simply as possible but that we might aim to do maximum good, that we might experience maximum joy in Jesus. And so what are we to do with this? Well, the first thing to mention on this is this. If you find yourself feeling stressed about this topic, particularly because you are in crippling financial need, we want to say that we're not here to take your money, that we would rather just help you. And not help you in a way to be like, let's get you back on track so you can start giving and you know, so on and so forth. But we realize that sometimes it can be the case that you can end up in a financial situation that is so bad and that you feel so embarrassed about that you almost feel like there's no way out. And maybe it's because someone has defrauded you or maybe it's through financial abuse or maybe it's through some bad decisions or whatever it is that got you to this point. But to say that if you are in that situation... We really want to help you. And there are ways to get out of it and to be helped. And I know it's so difficult to overcome that first step of, of the embarrassment and the shame that, that comes with maybe being in that situation that you may be feeling. But to know that there are people here who love you and can help. And so if that's where you are, just, just before we get to anything on giving, you might not be in a position to give, but you might actually need help at the moment and we would love to help you with that. It will put you in touch with services that can help you in this situation. But if you're here and feeling like, look, this is an area where I want to grow, then I want you just to be encouraged. Be encouraged that even though this can sometimes be a topic that presses right in on the heart, this is an area where God works powerfully and transforms lives. See, remember what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 9.8. Paul writes this. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's a lot of alls in there just to cover all of the bases, right? And then he goes on to say, you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And the argument is this, that we can no more make ourselves generous than we can raise ourselves from the dead. But Christ has that power. That if you are here and you follow Christ and believe in him, then he has sent his spirit into your heart and given you new life. And if he can do the greater, he can do the lesser. If he can raise a life and save a soul, then he can do the lesser work of making us generous. You know when you see those people who, who do like strongman feats, like, I don't know, pull an aeroplane, just, I don't, I don't know exactly how that works, but pull an aeroplane or flip a car or those kind of things as part of a strongman competition, you would of course then imagine that they could beat you in an arm wrestle. Because the logic goes, if you can do the greater, you can do the lesser. 
But so often we think of God as like, He can create a universe. He can create a way back to Him through sin. He can raise a life from the dead. I just can't imagine that He would make me a generous person. Or at least not a joyfully generous one. But it's not logical. This is what Paul writes to the church, saying this is the kind of thing that God does. That when the church acts generously, it's because God is at work. And so with that in mind, we return to where we started at Corinthians 16. Paul lays out these principles to the church. He says to them, give regularly. Why? Because it shows a deliberateness about giving, a heart transformed by the gospel. One that isn't just moved by like, we had a great week and I got all hyped up and then I gave away and then I regretted it later or whatever. There's a steadiness and a character to just giving regularly. Do we give from our first fruits, knowing that it's God who sets the priorities of the heart, that he is the one who has saved us and transformed our lives? And then we give according to our means. We pray, as Paul said, and set aside in our heart what we believe is a generous giving. And so as Anna mentioned before, that's why this week in groups, just for those who are members here at church, we're going to be pledging for the year and we're asking you guys to pray towards that. And this year, to meet the the needs of things going forward, to pay for the building down here at the high school, that's going to mean a growth in us of about 20% of our weekly giving. But we believe that as God has grown us over this year, that he will grow us in this area as well and that he is able to make his grace abound in us. But we actually want to go a a bit further beyond that. Because just trying to sort of meet our needs is sort of like playing for a draw, which if you're into sport is the most boring way to play a game. We want to actually uh, pray about a God taking us forward. And so every year, um, we, uh, for the last three years, we've put before the church a need that is kind of beyond just our regular sort of monthly budget that we think will help us grow towards being a healthy, growing, multi-generational church, having a Sydney-wide impact. And so this year's giving, or this year's kind of next giving, which is there on your seats, is for Josh's second year of his traineeship as he expands work in youth, as he continues to work with the youth group we have uh, and thinks about the opportunities sort of coming next and also helps with kids' ministry and the like. But we also wanted to go even one step beyond that because that was last year's news, so we're on to this year and what's next for us. We, we this year, and it may have happened on Friday, we have a building up on Darling Street that has been a really generous gift. And either this week or next week, we'll sign a new contract that means that that'll be our building for the next 25 years. So that has been, that has been uh, signed over as a lease for the last 99 years. That comes up in just a couple of years' time. And generously, that will be for our use for the next 25 years. And the reason that happened was because there was one person in particular who built that building Back when you could get land, like just barter for like a carton of cigarettes and whatever else to get land or whatever, I've seen, I've seen the original kind of lease agreement and all the, everything from William Balmain all the way down through, you know, the people who owned it. But, um, but he built that building and wrote on the front of it, till he comes, because he wanted it to be a place of ministry until Jesus comes. And because that's not a legally binding time frame, it had to be 99 years, but we're about to sign a lease for the next 25 years, and we'd like to invest in that ministry center so it would be a place that can be as hospitable as possible for those who are learning about Jesus for the first time, for the youth who are meeting in that area, for those who are doing Connect, if you've done that with us before joining a small group. And so the more we can make available for that, the better that space can be for the next however many years that we might be passing or sending forward, just like the generations before us did, a space for ministry that God's word might be heralded in the next generation as well. 
And so we'd love for you over this week to be thinking and praying about these things. And we know that that's big. But we know that we serve a big and generous God. And so I want to finish with this. Charles Spurgeon was an 18th century preacher who, reflecting on this very text in Corinthians, said this. He said, Let us learn then from the analogy of nature the great lesson that to get we must give, that to accumulate we must scatter, that to make ourselves happy we must make others happy. There is nothing in this world that does not live by giving except a covetous man, and such a man is a piece of grit in the machinery. He is out of gear with the universe. But the cheerful giver is marching to the music of the spheres. He is in order with God's great natural laws, and God therefore loves him since he sees in him his own work. Let's pray. Father, we're just blown away by the truth of the gospel, by the love that you have demonstrated toward us in Christ, and that the love you demonstrate to us in continually providing for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would transform us, that you would renew us and refresh us by the gospel, and that in this it might overflow in generosity. And Father, we pray this not for our glory, but for yours, that a watching world may look in and see a community of people who are so transformed by the gospel that it transforms every aspect of our lives, that we would live out the gospel reality, that there is a God who presides over the universe, who is generous and loving and good and self-sacrificing, and that it is your joy to love us in this way. And so, Father, we pray that you would abound in us a great joy, and we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.